You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. series we're calling Missional Living. It's focused on what our responsibility here is on earth, why were we created, what we were created for. Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, and so if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there, Romans 15, and we're going to start in verse 1. So we'll put that on the screen if you want to follow along with us. This is the Apostle Paul, and he writes this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant, to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you amongst the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of peace, or may the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you today. And we ask that you would make us, make that our prayer. That Lord, that through our believing, that you will fill us with a joy and a peace. That your power, the Holy Spirit power, may fill us with an abiding trust, abounding trust in your hope. So Lord, we pray that your word would be sufficient, that it would convict our hearts, that it would bring gladness to spaces that need it. We trust it. Help us to obey it. Help us to learn from it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today our topic is peace. And I will say to you, friend, there is peace available to you today in Christ. We believe that the intended purpose of humanity is to be in relationship with our Creator, 
to be in relationship with our God, enjoying him, trusting him, delighting in him. And that actually through that enjoyment and trust and delight in the Lord, that he is magnified, glorified, reflected into the world around us. The prevailing wisdom of scripture tells us that the very center of our design in this, our place of existence, in this, our allotted time and boundary, is to live out that purposeful relationship in front of others with different roles and responsibilities and obligation, all seeking to love God. That the world around us might taste and see God's goodness and the truth of God through our enjoyment, delight, and trust in Him. And that those people might reveal to us the truth of our conviction. They might reveal to us the true state of our own heart, whether or not we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might. And what must be a first requirement of us is that we surrender to a power and a strength that is not our own, that is outside of us. A God-given ability to see the world and others through weakness, through humility, that we don't see the world as something that we can conquer, nor do we have the pride to believe that we actually possess the capabilities to do so, but actually we approach life and all of its happenings through humility and weakness and see it as a grace from God that teaches us in its circumstances and events to trust him more fully, to enjoy him more deeply, and cling to him with all that we have. Cling to him who possesses us, that actually holds us, and is the only one that actually can overcome what is in front of us and what will be in front of us. That we find joy and contentment in knowing that the only real power we have is that God's power holds us, keeps us, saves us from a life of sin and death, saves us from the selfishness of our own human heart. And ultimately, then what comes from that deferred power and weakness is a profound peace as we rest in the Lord. And Paul speaks of this glorious truth to the church in Philippi. In the letter to the Philippians, which is in modern-day Greece, Paul says this in Philippians 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything be by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so let us not miss the repetitiveness of Paul, who points us towards a rejoicing always in everything. Not rejoicing in certain seasons or moments or circumstances or in a success, but a rejoicedness 
that transcends every season, every moment, every circumstance, every complexity, every difficulty and success in our lives, a rejoicing that is always inconsistent, that even the stresses and the hardships of our lives would not produce in us an ounce of anxiety, but even greater reason to defer and trust in the God that holds us, that changes us, that leads us, that even the successes and the triumphs of our lives aren't actually the products of self-made people, but gifts from a good and kind God that is redeeming and loving the world. And so friend, this is the big idea for us today. We first must ourselves have peace, peace, what is going on today? Have peace both inwardly and outwardly to reflect the gospel of peace to others. And I'll say that again. We first must ourselves have peace both inwardly and outwardly to reflect the gospel of peace to others. Friends, there is and can be a joyful dependency on and through Christ that actually brings rest in our lives, in which a peace that is utterly abounding and abundant is known a pervasive belief that above all things, I can trust God with whatever comes in front of me, that he will use it for his good and for his purposes. And whatever successes that I may have in this life are all the greater reasons to worship him and not elevate my own ego and self. And it is that peace that becomes the evidence of our conviction as followers of Christ to others. It is the foundation of our hope, and it is the conduit in which God's power is known and seen in the world. And that will be the focus of our study today, to understand peace as the evidence of our conviction, as the very foundation of our hope, and the conduit in which God's power is known to the world. I'm not sure that there are many other topics that I have frequented more often than the topic of peace. In fact, the entire Christmas season, what we call Advent, as we yearn in delight in his arrival, that whole season will center around peace for us. Its frequency is mainly because it is something that we are constant seekers of but rarely are we partakers in. Peace is the desire of a world that is constantly in distress. It's the lament of generation after generation of people who have sought world peace only to live in a world that never finds it. It's the character that, the carrot that dangles in front of every government and civilization who believe by policies and systems and laws that they can create it yet it's unrealized in this world. It's elusive. And that elusiveness has propelled the world to embrace a version of peace that doesn't unify or modify us. But instead, we have sought to modify the definition of what it means to be at peace. Peace is being reimagined as comfort, as pleasure, as quietness in this our time. 
It's the absence of stuff and noise and conflict. We resolve ourselves to pursuing a peace that ultimately doesn't remake anything, redeem anything, or unify anyone in the world, but instead, it's a peace where we demand the world to be at peace with us, where we say, I don't care what you do, just don't bother me. Don't bother me. And so please hear me, friend. Christ is the only definition of peace that matters. He's the only definition of peace that matters. Christ is the only hope humanity has for peace. Christ is the only author of wholeness and reconciliation. Christ's sacrifice is the only undertaking that deals with the source of evil and deception and wickedness in the hearts of humanity. Christ's blood is the only commodity that allows rebels to be redeemed. Christ is peace. And today I want to look in the scripture for a practical example for you to understand how the peace of Christ flows into our peace in life. And Romans 15 does that. And normally we take a passage and we like to understand what it fully means. Today we are looking at practical wisdom in this. And so in Romans 15, Paul is dealing with two distinct entities, believers that are at odds with one another. You have Jews who had given their life to Christ and Gentiles, which would be anyone who wasn't a Jew in that day and age. Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome somewhere between 56 and 57 AD. And so we know that the Gentiles he is talking about here are Roman citizens who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now there is a tension amongst this group that is seen throughout the entirety of the New Testament in the letters to Paul. Of course, those who were Jewish by nature, who believed in Jesus Christ as the true Messiah and the fulfillment of God's law, they were steeped in a monotheistic religion a monotheistic religion that centered around one God guiding and leading and advocating for the rescue of his people. They would have known God's law and what it was and why it was in place and why they were to observe those things. They would have understood how Jesus fulfills those sorts of laws. They would have celebrated moments in their past in which God intervened for their ancestors. But for the Gentiles... In Rome, they wouldn't have had that history. <laughs> they would have been very different. Rome was a polytheistic culture. They had great influences from Greek. They worshiped gods like Jupiter and Juno. All of their history would have centered around conquest. They would have not known a history that was about redemption. It was a civilization that was focused on power and strength and pleasure and status. And so two very different ideas and philosophies that are coming together under and through the atonement and love and grace of Jesus Christ. There are constant clashes that happen in Rome and other places over what one can eat what festivals one should and shouldn't celebrate, what one should and shouldn't do. And you can read about a litany of those in the chapters that lead up to Romans 15. 
And so Paul in this chapter is teaching these believers in Rome not to see every issue as an issue that divides. I think Paul has good wisdom for us today as well, not to think that every issue in our life is an issue to divide over. Now, granted, there are real issues for believers that have real weight in the area of salvation and human flourishing, how one is justified, that are worth dividing others with others with, but not out of human anger, but out of conviction of right belief. But we also know in ourselves as humanity that we have a propensity, a propensity to elevate our own rightness and knowledge. And left to our own devices, we will esteem our own opinions, our, our own thoughts as supreme and belittle those who disagree and challenge us. And so Paul's intent here is for them in Rome to see these controversies in the, issue, in the issues at hand through the lens of weak and strong, not right and wrong. Weak and strong in the area of maturity, not weak and strong in the area of status. Paul is trying to get these people to come together, that they would see each other differently through the peace that they've been granted through Christ. You know, I don't know if you've ever been asked to mediate a situation. I have been asked several times to step in as a mediator where two people have found themselves at odds with one another. They need somebody who is unbiased to come in. Two people with fundamentally different experiences and interpretations of events that have led them into two very different understandings and desires. And so to be a mediator is to be one who is detached from the problem or the issue so that you can hear both sides and advocate for goodness and truth and rightness and grace. It works only for the benefit of the two parties being reconciled, for that relationship be, to be restored. And essentially, this is the life that Paul is calling us into in Romans 15, a life that is detached from personal benefit in it. He says, let us not please ourselves. He says, let us not please ourselves. The entirety of our life should focus on reconciliation and bringing things back together. And, and that sort of mediation that focuses on reconciliation is the very evidence of Christ's peace reigning in our hearts. Paul writes it this way to the church in Corinth in his second letter to the church in Corinth in chapter five. Paul says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Our life, our faith centers around a beloved Savior Christ putting to death the war that rages 
in us against God, against our own creator. He absorbs the punishment of our disobedience. And through Christ, our sins are no longer counted against us. We have been reconciled undeservedly, and some would say even unnecessarily. God doesn't owe us this kind of love. So believer, maybe you need to hear today that by your faith, understand this, that God doesn't hate you, that God wants peace with you, and he's provided the way. So as one who knows the deep ways in which Christ has ended the battle of my own soul and has secured for me a peace through Christ, I have peace because my sins have been forgiven. I have peace because I am no longer bound as a slave to sin. Therefore, I am to partake in carrying that same message of peace and reconciliation forward. As one who sees the only benefit of our lives, as others being reconciled to the very God that saved us. Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This isn't about living in harmony with our neighbors by just doing things that our neighbors might like, but it's actually pursuing our neighbors in a way that we were promoting their good, whether they realize it or not. Not simply pleasure, but pursuing their good, a desire to see them built up to be unified with Christ. I like the way that the message interpretation conveys Romans 15 in this particular part. It says that strength is a service, not a status. Strength is a service, not a status. And it speaks of Christ this way, that that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles but he waded right in and helped out. I took on the troubles of the troubles is the way that scripture puts it. And so a peace that is the evidence of God's restorative work and power is to be one that looks out for the good of our neighbors, that promotes their wholeness, that actually removes the lens of ourselves from the equation. We're not looking for personal benefit as a neighbor, I'm not always seeking how my neighbor's property might elevate my own mortgage and my own property value. I seek their good. I'm not even looking for them to like me in some extent. But as a believer who's at peace with God, we seek the good of our neighbors so that their own flourishing and joy might be found deeper and fuller in the Lord. So I'll tell you this, the world doesn't know this peace. The world doesn't know this peace because it can't. It's the only, it's, I should say, it's, the, it's only a possession of those whom God possesses, of those of faith in God that has secured us and holds us. And Paul is commending believers to work from a position of rest in the Lord, peace in the Lord, and no other. And then he refers to the scriptures. He talks about these things were written in the former days that are for our instruction, for our endurance, for our encouragement, and even our hope. Paul, in referring to the ancient scriptures, is referring to the Torah, what we may call the Old Testament, which our Old Testament is a little bit more than what they had at that time. 
But Paul's reference of scripture here noted is not in that he's trying to condemn somebody with a particular verse as we often like to do when we weaponize scripture for our own rightness, but he elevates it as a narrative, a narrative that offers us profound hope. It is the common posture of people in this world and believers even to see the scriptures not as something as hopeful that's something that brings encouragement, but as documents of demand. A, a instrument of war that condemns our lack of joy in reading scripture can often revolve around what we believe our scriptures to be. Paul reminds us here that the story, the story of scripture is the story of a loving God who is working for the good of his people, who even stepped into the creation to do for creation what they could not. God himself secures peace for the world, and we can enjoy it by faith. Far too often, like the Israelites and the Gentiles are doing in this verse, we look through our scripture with the desire to be right and convey our rightness and use scripture in terms of demands, we use scripture as a way to draw a line and say, you don't belong here. But when we don't understand the whole story of scripture, that we, when we don't understand that all of scripture is about redemption, about God bringing his creation back into himself, securing a peace for us, through Christ, if we don't understand what God is doing and what he is for, if we miss the grand narrative story of scripture, we become free to use its parts, even its verses, in ways that it was not intended. But the scripture actually promotes unity and spurs us to hope, to read the stories of our ancestors and remember God's faithfulness to them and remind ourselves that God will be just as faithful to us as he was then. To read that God was sufficient for our friends and our neighbors and that someday God will be sufficient for us. God's story of securing a costly peace must be the foundational understanding of our scripture. It must be the foundation of it if we are to, to see scripture as encouragement and endurance and ultimately hope, that I can rest as I read scripture knowing that my life is settled for eternity. It's settled that my savior takes my fears and my cares and my concerns as he did with my ancestors. He will be faithful to me. Our peace is foundational to our understanding of hope in the scripture. And lastly, I want to look here at this last verse in Romans 15, this wishful prayer that Paul speaks. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So not only is peace evidential of our faith, not only is peace foundational to our hope, but peace is the very conduit in which the power of of the Holy Spirit is known in us and in the world. God's power is manifested through peace. Power that is sowed into chaos will always destroy, but power that is sowed into peace 
will build up. If God is going to dwell in us and through us, he will not allow his power to be manifest in a life that continues to be at war with itself and war with one another. Only one who is at rest, at peace with God through faith does the power of the Holy Spirit come known. You know, sometimes the secular world is critical of Scripture, believers, and Christ because of ours and his and its lack of clarity on certain topics. Now, there are things that are really clear in Scripture that our secular world contends are vague. And they often then critique Scripture and say there are elements of Scripture that are too vague and should be more concrete. Slavery is one of those topics that the secular world has attacked Christianity with over and over. Many believe that the scripture encourages slavery because it never outright condemns it. And that is true that the Bible doesn't outright condemn slavery in its verbiage. But what that argument fails to understand is that the purpose of scripture wasn't to make a list of right and wrongs for all of humanity to live by. The purposes of, of Scripture are to edify God, our love for Him, and our love for one another. God knows that if the human heart it isn't changed by some law that He creates, because if He creates a law, we'll certainly break it. Scripture compels a wisdom that gets behind the action, that gets behind the behavior, that, as one commentator writes, gets to the springs of life. It gets past the action, past the behavior, straight to the heart. It is the Scripture that teaches us that all of us on this world are image bearers with equal dignity and worth and value. It is the Scripture that teaches us to love one another, to even love one another more than we love ourselves. It is the scripture that calls us to understand that peace is not the possession of mankind, only secured through humility and weakness in Christ. The wisdom of scripture strips us. It strips us. God's wisdom is always working behind the action to change the heart to create environments and realities in which his creation can flourish by his love. And so despite a direct command that condemns slavery, it is irrelevant because it is God's wisdom that is dealing with the springs of life to create environments where things like slavery could never take place in the first place. And so I say that to say this, when our neighbors look at us, what do they see at the springs of our life? Do they sense within us a life of peace, a life at rest in our Savior? Not a peace that's about quietness or simply being pleasant, but in the very springs of our life. 
What would they answer if they asked themselves the question about you? Is this a person of peace? What would happen and what understanding would be created if our neighbors put cameras on their houses, which is weird, and watched the entirety of your life? Would it show us a person of peace? Would it show us a person whose property is like a beacon, a light that invites the troubles of mankind into it? Or do we treat our homes as fortresses that keep them out? Friends, when God brought shalom to the world, he brought a peace that went into really hard things and fix them. And that is the posture of a Christian. That we operate from a, a place of rest, a place of peace, because God has done for us what we could not. That's the big idea today. That's the big idea for us. That we first must ourselves have peace both inwardly and outwardly to reflect the gospel peace to others. And that only is found in one who admits their weakness in the face of Christ our Savior. Let that be our prayer this week, that God would fill us with peace and joy in our salvation, that we might be his agents of reconciliation to the world declaring to this world that God has made peace with man through Christ.